Well, it's good to be, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'm Joe, one of the pastors here, and we do have some special guests today, so I'm so grateful that mothers of murdered Columbus children would come and join with us, and we have one of the mothers who's going to share, Renette, if you want to come on up, and uh, um, we're so honored to have you in the space and to hear your story, and um, you can come, and uh, if, you'll stand up, if you'll stand up here, we'll be able to hear you better with this mic. story, and then if uh, maybe we'll do some questions afterwards. My name is Ronette. Um, my son is Giante Attaway. On October the 17th, I was going to the Mothers and Murder Children's, um, one of their groups that they were having, and I came downstairs. I had took the day off, and my son said, why are you got that on? Why are you doing this? And I said, I just want to go and support the women who lost their children. And he said, I don't think you should do that. And I went upstairs and went to bed, didn't go, not knowing God was preparing me that I was going to lose my son two weeks later. So on October the 28th, I was with my son, who was 22 years old. We were together. We switched cars. I go to, I had, I had my own cleaning company, and I was sticking the key into the building of my job. And I get a phone call, Giante been shot. Get, you need to get to the hospital. Get where? To the hospital. So I'm on my way to um, St. Anne's Hospital. When I was on my way there, a car hit me. I didn't know where to go, how to get there, nothing. So I called, did, couldn't see. I called one of my daughter-in-laws, and I asked her, I said, how do you get to St. Anne's? They said Giante got shot. I got there. She told me how to get there. She talked to me on the way there. I get there. They said, we got to transfer him to Mount Carmel East because they don't, we don't have trauma at St. Anne's. I said, okay. So that was on the 28th. And on the 31st, I asked them, I said, um, he's not waking up. I said, is something wrong? And a nurse told me, he said, I've been wanting to act, tell you, but I couldn't tell you. He said, ask for a brain activity test. I said, okay. So I asked them and they told me, they did the test in front of us, and they declared him brain dead October the 31st. And so I got with the mothers, and Melissa St. Thomas, Miss St. Clair Thomas, she, I, have, I was so angry at everybody, but she would not let me go. She would keep reaching out to me, you need to come. I would come, we gonna be such and such, and I would come, and now I'm a leader. I'm in the leadership program of the Mothers of Columbus Children. Can you share a little bit about some of the things that Mothers of uh, uh, Columbus Children, um, some of the programs and initiatives that you guys do? We go out and we try to stop the violence for another mother wouldn't wear what we wear. So we go to different places where we know the high crimes is at and try to reach out to people and try to reach out to the youth. Um, what is one of the ways that we can be praying for mothers of murdered Columbus children? How can, how can our church pray and support the work that you're doing? Any ideas? Um, just asking God to heal the kids and ask them to put these guns down and instead of being against one another, work together and be, you know, Help one another. Yeah. That's great. Anything else you want to share? 
I just want to share, we just need to work together as a whole, as a, you know, this whole community, whole world to help one another instead of being against one another. Mm. We need to come together mm. and stop the violence. Getting involved or, or uh, participating beyond the Christmas Eve offering, I encourage you to grab that Connect card that we talked about earlier, put your name on it, and mention Mothers of Murdered Columbus Children in one of the comment sections, and we'll make sure we get your information over to uh, Melissa and her team. Yeah, you want to share one? Yep. We okay. have a pledge uh, for 2024, and um, not that we want another mother to lose a child, <clears throat> But these past few years, uh, it, the murders have been in triple digits. And our pledge is not one more. That's, our, that's what we want. But if we can get it under triple digits, you know, even losing one is not good. So we've been asking people you know, to pledge to do your part, mm. to do your part. If your part is just talking, if your part is just gathering youth, if your part is one woman pledged yesterday to show more love. Mm. She said, because children not seeing it, so if your pledge is just to show love, if that's what I can do to help save someone to keep, you know, down violence in some way, anyway, anyway, if my pledge is to, um, if I see something, say something, whatever it is, we ask that you give that pledge, you know, I, pledge. That touched my heart to love more, just to show somebody love, however that looks like to you. So that's our goal. Um, and we have so many on board with us, the city, the, um, the chief, and everyone is on board to, we're going to work hard. You know, we, as we say, our feet is to the pavement mm -hmm. to um, say not one more, to not have another mother wear orange shirt and as often as I say to our youth when I meet your mother I want to meet your mother in the mall I want to meet your mother at bowling now I want to meet your mother at PTA mm -hmm. you know I want to meet your mother at church I don't want to meet your mother at a scene I don't want to meet your mm. mother giving her an orange shirt mm. so even our youth to our youth to make that pledge you know to let our mother, your, our, even our fathers, see your face one more time. So that, you know, we're out to help. Are you guys collecting the orange hands? That, I, I signed a pledge on an orange hand. Maybe we can get some of those for Christmas Certainly. Eve. And we invite people to add their name to the list. Certainly, definitely. There's been 144 homicides this year. Yes. The goal yes. in 2024 is less than triple digits. That's what, that's what and zero would be great but less than triple digits. Yeah, right. And like I said, we all can do our part. You know, it's, we never know uh, what a hug can do. We never know what a good morning can do. We never know what a smile. Yeah. It can change somebody's life. So let's make our pledge and do our part. Would you, would you all thank them for coming today? The work that they're doing. Thank you so much. I want to just uh, take a moment um, and spend a few moments in prayer. I'm going to give you some time to sit in the silence.
something we often do to prepare our hearts for worship, but today there might be a few other things on our hearts. And as we often do, is, as, as things come to mind, um, as we ponder what we've just heard, as we think about mothers who've lost their kids in Columbus, I'd encourage you to lift those concerns up to God. Um, know that we're not just praying for you all, um, but we want to make a difference too. But that doesn't mean we're not going to pray as well. And so I encourage us to sit in silence to allow God to prepare our hearts for what uh, God might want to say to us today. Let's pray. God, you know what stirs in our hearts, our fears and our brokenness, the people and the things that we grieve. And in the midst of all of the world's suffering, you have chosen to be one of us, to be born into a world of violence so you might transform it from the inside out. Help us, Lord to be agents of your peace. Help us, Lord, to bring peace on earth as it is in heaven. Help us, Lord. Show us the way and show us that we really are better together. We give you thanks. All of God's people said. I want to start today... Uh, where we ended last week, and if you weren't here with us last week, no worries. Uh, we spent time looking at the Old Testament stories of Abraham, I, ooh, that was close. Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, and Joseph. The story of how the twelve tribes of Israel came to be. Here's the family tree that we uh, explored. Yes, very. Gotta love a good chart. I got another chart for us today, so don't worry. Yeah, we love the charts. Um, the yellow names are the fathers of what uh, um, would become the twelve tribes of Israel. I mentioned this only briefly last week, but uh, Joseph, uh, one of the sons of, of, of Jacob, uh, would uh, go on to play a major role in his family because that's how Joes tend to do it, you know? Um, his, his brother sold him into slavery. He took, uh, he took that bad experience, all right, and he made something out of it. And with God's blessing, he became a leader in Egypt. And when famine struck, his family came to Egypt for help, and Joseph was not only able to help them, but reconcile with them. And this is how the people of Israel ended up in Egypt, uh, where they settled down. And so our story today starts here, years and years later, generations later, when these families grew into small nations. They grew so large and so powerful at the feet of the Egyptians that they start worrying about them, so much so that they start to oppress them. Eventually, the Egyptians turned the Israelites into slaves. They continued to grow still, and leaders in Egypt were worried that these slaves might rise up. So they instituted a government-mandated birth control. Women were allowed to be born to the Israelites, but if you gave birth to a son, to a boy, the midwives were instructed to kill them. God bless midwives. They refused. And so the leader gets angry at the midwives, and he calls a few of the leaders of the midwives together, and he says, why are you letting the boys live? And the midwives say, well, the Israelite women are tough. 
And they give birth before the midwives arrive, which is just great because the, you know, the leader, they're, they're worried. They're worried about the strength of the Israelites, that they might be too powerful. If someone's being oppressed, it's usually because someone's worried they might be too powerful. And so the midwives play off their fear, telling them, oh, even the women are strong and giving birth on their own. And the king, of course, believes her, them because it's rooted in his fear. And he says, fine, from now on, any Israelite who is born should be tossed into the Nile River. That's what's happening when Moses is born. You all remember Moses? It's a setting for Moses' birth narrative, birth story. His mother keeps him hidden until she can't anymore. And then she, along with Moses' sister, builds a basket. It's an ark of sorts. And they place Moses into it, into the reeds of the Nile River, pushing him towards the Pharaoh's house, which technically speaking, they did toss him in the Nile. Did you pick up on that? The leader said to toss him, you know, to kill him, toss him in the Nile, and that's what they do. And I love the way that they keep the law while still doing the right thing, which is my favorite kind of civil disobedience. <laughs> of course, the Pharaoh's daughter finds the baby and wants to keep him. Uh, if you remember this story, if you've read it, she, she, uh, there's some great movies out there, by the way, if you haven't. Uh, she needs someone to nurse him, though, and so Moses' sister is nearby and says, oh, I'll go find someone to nurse this baby, and she goes and gets Moses' mother. Oh which is the best part of the story. She gave her son away, hoping he'd have a life only to get him back. <laughs> That's kind of the hardest part of parenting and letting our children go. It's actually a whole other sermon on baptism, where in baptism of the waters of baptism, we let our children go, handing them over to God into a new kind of family, only to realize that they're now closer than ever before, and we get to keep them after all. So Moses grows up in Pharaoh's house, and being an Israelite growing up in the Egyptian house, he's kind of living in both worlds, and he witnesses an Egyptian beating an Israelite, and so he kills the Egyptian. And in his mind, he's like, I'm standing up for my people. I'm an Israelite first. But later, when talking to two Israelites, they weren't impressed. They couldn't see him as anything other than an Egyptian, because he'd been living in the master's house. And like many children who belong to one group of people but are raised in another, he struggles to figure out who he is, and it's all too much, so he leaves. He runs away. He goes into the wilderness, and he marries the daughter of a nomad, becomes a shepherd, until God calls him. Beautiful story involving a burning bush. He, uh, of course, resists, as we often do when God tells us to do something, but in the end, he does, and he goes back, and he delivers his people from slavery. And what becomes the story of the Passover celebrated every year to this day, thousands and thousands of years later, by the Hebrew faith. And a reminder of the day that the angel of death on that day, as he's delivering his people from Egypt, the angel of death showed up to take every firstborn of everyone in Egypt, and by everyone, I mean everyone's firstborn. That's the thing about death. It doesn't care who you are your color, your nationality, your gender, or how much money you have. Death does not discriminate. And so God sent the angel of death to Egypt, but he had to have a way to save the people of Israel in the midst of that. So they were told to, uh, and I really love this story, they were told to trick the angel of death. I don't know if you realize that's what's going on here. Uh, so they're told to trick the angel of death, um, and uh, it's a pretty good trick. They're told to take a lamb and to slaughter it, and then take the blood of the lamb and spread it all over the door of their house. That way, when the angel of death comes, they see the blood has already been spent here and thinks, oh, wow, it must have already been at this house already. And they move on to the next house. That's how the story's told. 
And so there's this blood over the door frame, and they would live. They would hide behind the blood of a lamb. And in the end, after losing so many firstborns, Egypt lets the Israelites free. They cross the Red Sea. The water parts. Do you remember that? And they reach safety on their side. And then, once on the other side, they camp out in the wilderness. And Moses climbs a mountain, and he meets God at the top of the mountain, and God gives him the Ten Commandments. Do you remember those? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not kill. Oh, very basic rules that should govern any community. Can you imagine if we lived in a world without murder? So this is the world that God wanted the people of Israel to create. And so they head to the promised land. They get to the promised land, decide it's too hard to take the promised land. They refuse. So they're forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Eventually, under the leadership of someone other than Moses, a guy named Joshua, which, by the way, is the same name as Jesus. It means God saves. Leads them across the Jordan River. It happens to part as well. Parting of water is a big deal. And as they cross the Jordan River, they finally leave behind their slavery, their oppression, and they enter into a land where they would be free, and they divide the land amongst those 12 tribes that I showed you earlier. And that's how we're told the nation of Israel becomes a nation. All of this starts, though, with the story of a baby being born. A baby being born into a world of violence, oppression, slavery, hatred, fear of outsiders, xenophobia. We're in a series right now called The Original Hebrew Nativities. And we're looking at them and trying to find out what they teach us about the Christmas story. And in this series, we're looking at birth narratives or stories that tell us the circumstances of someone's birth that we find in the Hebrew Bible, specifically the Old Testament, knowing that these stories are intentionally used to shape Jesus' story. And the story of Moses is no exception. So today, I want to consider Moses' story compared to Jesus' story, uh, specifically in the Gospel of Matthew. To do that, I am going to use a chart. Yeah? We love charts? <laughs> I love charts. <laughs> you can pretend to like them. Um, consider it with me. A little hard to read, but I can provide this in another time if you want. Moses was born into a world that was committing violence against children. And the government was oppressing his people. Thousands of years later, it's the same story. You read the story of Jesus giving uh, Jesus' the Christmas story in the Gospel of Matthew, alluding that he was born into a time where the people of Israel were being oppressed. They were under Roman occupation. They weren't slaves, per se, at this point, but they were second-class citizens. And Herod, the king of Israel, appointed by Rome, heard that someone special was going to be born, a, the true king of the Jews, not a king like him in any way, but a king nonetheless, and he wasn't going to have it. So guess what he does? He orders, at the birth of Jesus, to murder all the male babies. I told you I was going to do this, yeah, my bad. In the end, Jesus' parents aren't warned, uh, are warned, and after being visited by the three magi, he flees to Egypt. Egypt, just in case you needed help connecting these two stories. And just like Moses leads his people out of Egypt, Jesus returns from Egypt, and Jesus and his family become refugees, running for their lives. 
I'm not making this up. You can read it for yourself in Matthew chapter 2. But in time, Jesus grows up and starts his ministry. Whereas the people of Israel entered the promised land by crossing the Jordan River, watch this, Jesus would begin his ministry and invite others to join this new kind of promised land by being baptized in the Jordan River. And by being baptized, we would cross from death to life, from slave to sin to freedom. You can read it for yourself, Matthew chapter 3. And whereas the people of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus would fast and pray in the wilderness for 40 days. You can't make this up. Matthew chapter 4 just follows Moses' story exactly. And then after Jesus was wandered in the wilderness, and this part I hadn't thought of before, but after Jesus was wandered in the wilderness for 40 days, he climbs what? A mountain. And he delivers a sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, which is short for mountain, if you, I hadn't thought of that, you know? It's like a small mountain. But, it'd be, but instead of giving the Ten Commandments again that are written in stone, he would preach a sermon to a community of people and to uh, uh, a law not written in stone, but one that would be written in our hearts. And it was a sermon, a sermon on the mount, that's been preached and studied and reflected on and read for thousands of years. Profound sermon. I highly recommend it. And this sermon says this. Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, he hasn't come to destroy the Ten Commandments or the Old Testament to, to fulfill them. Fulfill here means to complete, to fill to the fullest potential. He wants to fulfill or complete. I'd even say he wants to help us understand the original intent, and so much so that he goes on, standing on this mountain of sorts, similar to the way Moses stood on a mountain and received the Ten Commandments. Jesus stands on the mountain and, and refers to, um, he says, You have heard it said to the people long ago, speaking of Moses, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That's what you've heard. One of the Ten Commandments, given on a mountain just like this. He quotes it. We're supposed to be reminded of Moses' story. And so he says, but he says, but he says, you have heard it said, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. He said, stay with me for a second. Not only should we not murder, but we shouldn't feed the parts of ourselves that allow us to hate people. Because I'm going to be honest, and and I apologize if I get this wrong, but I'm I'm about 75% sure I'm right. Murder doesn't happen out of nowhere. It's a product hate and suffering and and hurt and pain, and it builds up over time. And and if we could just learn to love each other, no matter who we are, no matter our color, nationality, immigration status, gender, identity, sexual expression, if we learn to love each other and create a system or a community that was rooted in loving all people equally, we'd stop turning people into murderers. Don't get me wrong, people are responsible for their actions. I don't want that to not come across. But rarely does murder come solely from the hatred of a single individual. In fact, we know that in uh, the violence in our city, we know it's a cycle. People who commit violence are more likely to experience it, and people who have experienced violence are more likely to commit it. In other words, 
it's a product of our communities. And so Jesus tells us that if we don't want people to murder other people, we need to be better at not hating other people, not only in our relationships, but in the systems we build and how they might oppress people. And Jesus says, if you're guilty of hating someone, you're part of the problem. Because that hate spreads like a cancer and it grows and it works its way through our society and into our laws and into our policing and into our families. And murder is just one symptom of it. That's why Jesus goes on to say something that I find terribly difficult. He says it a few verses later after he addresses a few other Old Testament laws. He says in verse 43, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what you've heard. But I tell you, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. I believe that we break cycles of violence with love. In the end, the people couldn't hear this radical teaching of Jesus, and he's murdered for it, killed. While the people of Israel were saved from the angel of death by hiding behind the blood of a lamb, the people of Jesus believed that we are saved from the pain of death, hiding behind the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God. And we people of Jesus believe that we can, uh, you know, trick death. Death can't touch me. I'm hiding behind the death of Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that death doesn't happen. It means that death won't have the final say. It doesn't get the final say anymore. Death doesn't have to define us anymore. Because Jesus' death and resurrection, we can be people of life, even when death catches up to us, whether in old age or far earlier than it should. We know that Jesus still gets the final say, and we are delivered in the life to come. Whether in this life or the next, death can't touch me. Death doesn't get the final say anymore, because we are people of life. And we need to be agents of life in this world. I think Jesus shares a similar story to Moses because God wants us to know that Jesus came to deliver people from bondage and oppression, to set things right, to pursue justice and mercy. Jesus wants to lead us out of Egypt, so to speak, into a new promised land, not set by geographic borders, but created when people come together and choose to love one another. I believe that Jesus shares a similar story to Moses because God wants us to know that God wasn't afraid to enter into the violence of this world, to risk becoming one of us, and in the end, dying like one of us. Jesus knows what it feels like to be murdered and knows the life is possible after death, even after the world throws all of its hate at us and the ones that we love. Jesus knows that death doesn't get the final say. Jesus shares a similar story to Moses to show us that Jesus is the Lamb of God, whose life was taken, and now we share in this death, and we can share in his resurrection so that we might be defined, so we might not be defined by death anymore. And I think Jesus shares a story similar to Moses because Jesus came to fulfill the law, to help us understand the intent of the law, to show us that we can't just kill each other. We have to break cycles of violence by loving everyone, everywhere, all the time. And only then will we see the world become what we hope for. Only then will we build the kingdom of God or this new promised land. I think you can tell the effectiveness of churches in a city in a particular way, 
How, how effective is a church being? Not, not just this church, but like the church in the Columbus city. How effective is a church in the city of Columbus? And, and, and uh, I would say that you can't measure it based on how many people are in worship or how many people are being baptized or saved or how many people serve on teams. All good things, but, but not the best way to measure the effectiveness of churches in a city. The best way to measure the effectiveness of churches in a city is to see how well that city embodies this new vision for the world. To see how well we've been able to bring heaven to earth. Or as we prayed in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To see how well we've built a beloved community here. Let me explain it like this. We've had 144 homicides this year in our city. So I ask you, have we brought heaven to earth? Have we built the beloved community? Is our work as a beloved community over once we are saved? And, you know, I'm good. I'm going to heaven. That's good enough. Or is our work just the beginning? I want to say that we are committed to the vision of mothers of murdered Columbus children. We want to see homicides below triple digits. We want to, see, uh, we want to be agents of life in this world. And so I would consider you... Uh, to, to prayerfully consider what you would give towards our Christmas Eve offering. It'll go towards their work. And um, I encourage you also to be on the lookout uh, for ways in which we can continue to partner with Columbus Violence Reduction and other initiatives that are bringing peace on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we give you thanks. We trust that you're able to meet us and speak to us in profound ways. God, I pray that regardless of what I said today, that your spirit is able to work within our hearts and our minds and give us the hope that we need. That you would show us how to be agents of life in this world, that you would help us build relationships across all of the barriers that this world would throw at us. That we might be a place of grace and peace and love and that we might see our city transformed as people of faith come together and usher in your family here on earth. Holy Spirit, use us. Amen.